Chris and Chris Talk Movies. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chris Ferry and of course this is my co-host. My name is Chris Huddleston. And today we are very excited to be talking to you about Guillermo del Toro's latest feature film, a remake of the 1947 47 something like that i didn't i didn't check the date on the original Noir, uh 40 night, sometime yeah the, the, this is a brand new movie we're going to be talking about but it's nightmare alley you don't fool people stand they fool themselves nightmare alley only in theaters december 17th final trailer starts now I'll ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle? Doctor. That. Please lay down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. You don't fool people, Stan. They fool themselves. I've given you a fortune. It's time that you delivered. When does it end? I want to know. <laughs> if you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. Do you have a synopsis for us, Mr. I do. And uh, as we said, this is uh, this came out December 17th, 2021. So it's new, new ish. Um, And it is currently on HBO Max. So if you have HBO Max, you can watch it. You don't have to pay extra. So it was written and directed by Guillermo del Toro stars Bradley Cooper, Rooney Mara, Kate Blanchett, Ron Perlman, Tony Collette, Mary Steenburge and Willem Dafoe. David, I never know how to pronounce his name, Strathairn, Strathairn, Richard Jenkins. All right. When charismatic but down on his luck, Stanton Carlisle, Bradley Cooper, endears himself to clairvoyant Zena, Tony Collette, and her has-been mentalist husband, Pete David Strathairn. At a traveling carnival, he crafts a golden ticket to success, using this newly acquired knowledge to grip the wealthy elite of 1940s New York society. With the virtuous Molly, Runamara, loyally by his side, Stanton plots to con a dangerous tycoon, Richard Jenkins, with the aid of a mysterious psychiatrist, Kate Blanchett, who might be his most formidable opponent yet. Mm. All right. So, well written. Yeah, it's not too bad. And so we, I don't know if we said this already, but, you know, spoiler alert. Right, because we're going to spoil it. Going to spoil. So what did you think? Uh, I loved it. I, I really, really, really dug it. Um, excuse me. You had mentioned that you turned your colorway down uh, and watched it in black and white. Yeah. So let me say something about that. So uh, I had read that Guillermo del Toro, um, the, the film was intended to be both in color and in black and white. So it wasn't like, you know, there have been some movies in recent years, a few, I think justice league, they did this with, um, and, uh, the mist, the Stephen King movie from 10 or so years ago, they, they released a black and white version of no kidding. And I don't, with those, I don't know if they were, if there's, if it was just kind of a gimmick, but dear Guillermo del Toro said, you know, this was specifically lit and shot and everything to be both in color and black and white. And they did a limited release in theaters of this in black and white. Now, what you can get streaming right now is at least on HBO Max is the color version. But uh, so if you're interested in this movie and it's still in the theater in your area and you could see it in black and white, I would love to do that myself. 
Um, but yeah, I turned the color down to where it was black and white. And uh, then I went back and watched a couple of scenes in color and it just, it just feels very different in black and white. I thought it was amazing. I was not able to do that because of the way in which I watched the movie. I'm not even sure on my TV how I would do that. Um, but I liked it so much that I might go back and try that. You can mm-hmm. see that it's lit. It's very much uh, noir. It's very much set in the period, uh, which, which starts there just making announcements. Somebody says that, uh, you know, Hitler just invaded Poland. So that's... Mm-hmm. Early for 1940. There's at one point where they say they do say in the film that it's 1941. Yeah. But that is so it was probably like late 30s in the beginning, I think, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a two hour progression in the movie. The synopsis you said, yeah, it's two and a half hours long. No, I mean, there's a I I didn't mean two hours. I meant two years. There's a it skips ahead two years at one point. But uh, but it is a long movie. I, it didn't mm-hmm. feel long to me. I was no. completely engrossed in it. I remember looking at the runtime and thinking, oh, yikes, two and a half hours. But man, it just went barreling right along. And I, next thing I know, it was like we're in the last half hour. And I was like, man, is it over yet? Because it was so good. Um, I did read an interesting article. I have not seen the original. Yeah, neither um, have I. Which is a, a supposedly a noir classic. Um I, I had never even heard of it prior to this movie coming out. I, I hadn't either. It's based on a book. Um, but then I'm hardly, you know, a film buff in that regard. Like, I don't yeah. know much about the golden age of cinema there. Uh, Same here. <laughs> um, but I did read some an interesting article that talked about the differences between the two films. Um, and it made me kind of interested to see the original one. Mm-hmm which was made in the 40s. So it was more or less a contemporary story, the first film. And this is a very much a period piece. Um, I think all the performances are fantastic. I think uh, it's a great cast. The look is... um, It's spectacular. I mean, it just looks so lush and sure they look like sets you know one of the reasons why i would like to see it in black and white is i wonder if that would because of the way it was lit like it's it's gorgeous i I don't say it looks like sets in a derogatory way it's um it looks like a, a grand movie you know he in the in the um in the carnival, they're doing a lot to create a mood. And uh, at one time, they go in the House of Horrors, and there's all these fantastic set pieces that I, you know, I myself was kind of like, that would be a pretty awesome House of Horrors if that was real. Did they have the money in a sideshow to do that? Yeah, I would go through that again and again, just because in the movie, it's such an amazing House of Horrors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, you know, and then the, the the picture you see behind me here is the psychiatrist's office. It's just, I mean, the whole thing is, you know, we watched um, Crimson Peak. Yeah. And Crimson Peak was sort of very gothic in that way. And the sets were lush. And this was, I that may be considered a sort of signature of Del Toro's, but mm-hmm. um, it made for a very enjoyable, it made for a very enjoyable watch, I must say. Um I thought uh, I thought while you initially set it up, you said, you know, it's not an, a horror movie, um, which you think, oh, Del Toro, knowing nothing about it. You think Del Toro, Nightmare Alley, it's got to be a horror movie. But and it's not it's not a horror movie, but there are definitely elements of the supernatural in it. The guy is a mentalist. Right. So he's. He, he's a con man, but his angle is reading people's minds and touching uh, the spirit world. And people keep warning him, don't do Don't make it a spook show. Right. Don't talk to the dead or talk about bringing back the dead. And of course, it, it veers that way to negative result mm-hmm. <laughs> as, pre- as predicted. Um, you know, but but there are characters in it. 
that do monstrous things. And so there are monsters in this movie. They're just people. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I really loved it. What, what were some of the things that, that stood out to you that you wanted to talk about? Yeah. So I loved it as well. And I am a big del Toro fan. Almost everything that he's done. I've loved. Um, when you bring up the monster aspect, I was thinking, I believe this is the only film that he's done. So it does get into these uh, Bradley Cooper becomes a mentalist. And he, so he starts out at this sideshow and he kind of picks the brain of this older guy there and learns all of his tricks. And then he, you know, uses that to, to go on and then do his own thing. And he's, he's after a couple of years, he's making a lot of money. And, but it's all fake. He's a con man. And so he's he sets up this wealthy man uh, played by Richard Jenkins, who his was it his wife or girlfriend? I don't know that had died. And he does this con that he's communicating with her. And in the end, he's going to the ultimate con is going to be she's going to appear to him, which he uses his wife, Rooney Mara, to to dress up as as women and everything. And I kind of thought I thought maybe it being del toro that the actual ghost of that woman might show up hmm. but there is no actual supernatural there are no actual supernatural elements in this you know there there are no creatures or ghosts or any which i i believe this is the only one of his movies that that does not happen in um and so what, that was a bit of a, what the ahead. human beings what the characters in this movie do to each other emotionally and physically is horrifying enough Oh yeah, for sure. Um, there are moments where you really, you know, I just felt my flesh crawl because I was like, oh, what a miserable, you know, and yeah. it, it's really masterfully done. Um, there's a realization Bradley Cooper makes at the end about the geek. Uh, it, and when that penny drops, when when I realized it was slightly different from when the character realized it, I saw it coming a, a, a few beats before bradley cooper's character did me too and that that moment i was like yo that is that is a masterstroke like i know that i know i understand that del toro didn't create that 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 is the story of Mm -hmm. the book and then the first film and now this film but i just thought oh man i mean i guess i don't know why i'm being coy we should talk about it one of the things early on is is this geek um And the geek was, and I didn't know, you know, I'm not well versed in this, but they, they, there was, uh, in these sideshows, they had a geek or they had geeks who would basically, they would kill chickens. So we have the early on, there's, uh, this, the guy that's in the sideshow who they present as being half man, half beast. And they throw it, you know, he's kind of down in this pit and they throw a live chicken in there and he you know, bites it in the neck and then rips its head off. Yeah. And there's a scene where uh, Bradley Cooper goes out with Willem Dafoe and Willem Dafoe explains to him how they get someone to do that. So it wasn't that the guy is half man, half beast. Willem uh, Dafoe is running the, the circus, the carnival right. that he joins. So Willem Dafoe is the sort of boss. He's a nasty piece of work yeah Um, so they he explains that and i don't know if this was real if this is what they actually did or if this is just made up for the movie or or not i i you know i don't know enough about it but he said you know they would take a they would find a guy who was an alcoholic a severe alcoholic bradley sorry bradley cooper asked him he's like where do you find because because the geek gets sick and dies but well gets really sick and they dump them outside of a church or something and ring the bell and run off. Uh, but that that's that. Like, they're not going to go back for this guy. The right. implication in the movie is, like, he's not going to make it. Like, he gets... Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to that later because yeah. I have some questions that I want to ask you. But, um, go but ahead. he says, where do you find a geek? And he says, oh, you don't find him, you make him. Mm-hmm. And then, then proceed. And then he... Yeah, so he... Them. So he said, you know, you take you take a, a, a guy who's down on his luck, an alcoholic, and 
you know, you bring them in, lure them in with liquor. And then you, he had this liquid opium and you add a drop or two of this opium to their alcohol. And then they get completely hooked on that. And then you've got them and they'll do anything that you right. want to get more, you know, to get more of that. And right. Bradley he, tell, him, says, tell him it's only temporary. It's, it's only a temporary gig. Uh, and then once they get nice and hooked and they think it's easy street and they get a you know hot meal and a dry place to sleep and you know and they get used to biting the head off the chicken which is disgusting but he's like you're amazing it's amazing what people get used to then you tell them it's not working out get out of here right mm -hmm. <laughs> and you kind of land the hook where now the person is desperate to stay and he's thankful for doing it whereas at the beginning it's a it's a hill. The idea of doing this is this disgusting hump you have to get over. But right. if, I guess if it's only temporary and that's how bad things are right now, I guess I could do it for a little while. Right. And Brett and he tells Bradley Cooper this and you just think, wow, what a horrible existence this would be. And Bradley Cooper just says, poor bastard. Yeah. You know? um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the thought I had was it's, it's, a, they keep him in a cage. It's not like mm -hmm. he's free to go. I mean, it never comes up, but the point is, is that you've got this addict that you're keeping addicted and you're keeping in a cage. So the person is so strung out and dependent on you that it doesn't, you know, it's a kind of slavery. It's this, you're kind of keeping this poor guy at the bottom with your boot on his throat. I mean, if I guess it doesn't come up that if somebody said, oh, let me out of here, they would or they wouldn't, but they mm -hmm. wouldn't want to. They'd do everything they, you know, and and the person is hooked on on the hooch that you're giving them that you're lacing with opium. So it's like, oh, my God, it's really, really so like the whole thing is seedy, right? It's all. We know carnivals and sideshows and freak shows. The whole thing is kind of the underbelly of the human experience. People come and pay a nickel to gawk at the, the misery of others, basically, the freaks. Yeah. But then you think, and you think, oh, well, these are a bunch of people that, you know, run this kind of a, an operation. But when he talks about the geek, you're like, oh, wow, it really is. It, that's criminal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And that's the, so this is the question I have. So er, the kind of the, the first half or so of the film is Bradley Cooper is just this guy who's on a train. He gets off the train and he shows up. There's this sideshow and they, uh, I think it's, it's um, Willem Dafoe says, Hey, you know, you want to do some work for whatever it is, a hot meal or a dollar or whatever it is. And so Bradley Cooper starts working for them and he seemingly will just do whatever is necessary to do. He seems like. Yeah. Helping him take down the tents, moving wood around. I mean, he's just a general purpose stage handy, you know, right. Do this, do that, lift that drive, take the, put the tent up, take it down, anything, you know, he doesn't but have a job obviously... description. He's obviously a little smarter than maybe the average, you know, drifter would be or whatever. And he starts to quickly learn, um, particularly he starts to learn from this guy who has this mentalist act and he comes up with ways that they can improve some things. And, but he's very much presented as, you know, he's the, he's the main character of the film and he's presented as a, a reasonably decent person early on. So for example, the, well, the first thing we see him doing is dragging a body into that's a true. That's hole true. Yeah. on the floorboards. And we don't right. know who, and we don't know what, and we learn more about it as the movie goes up. Yeah. I forgot but about the first the, thing that we opening. see is there's yeah. a, a body in a burlap sack that he drags into a hole and then he burns the house down around it. Yeah. And goes walking away. Opening, yeah. And he's he looks a little shell shocked, right? And he basically gets on a bus and takes the bus to the last stop and gets off and s sees a I don't know if a little person and mm -hmm. crossing the street, uh, sort of catches his attention, crosses the street over, and just follows the guy. 
mm-hmm. back into the carnival. So that's how he, he, you know, we don't know anything about him except he dragged yeah. the body in a house and burned it down. Exactly. Yeah. But, so, but you're but, right. His manner is generally not one. He doesn't seem like he's got malicious intent. We don't know what that story is, but we sense that it's complicated. Um, and compared to Willem Dafoe, so there's a couple of different things. So, you know, Willem Dafoe does not treat the geek as a as a human being. And there's one. So uh, while he's with the sideshow, Bradley Cooper, he sleeps in the same tent where the geek is. And there's one scene where he's smoking a cigarette and he goes over and, you know, and offers the geek a, a drag off of of the cigarette. And then when the geek is of no longer of use, the uh, where you talked about where they they dumped him off. I think it was a doctor's office. But at any rate, Uh-oh. he has a he has a head wound where he's gotten hit in the head. And Willem Dafoe is like, you know, we got to take him to the doctor. So they go in this alleyway and it's, you know, it's pouring down the rain and, you know, they have to carry him over to the door. They drop him down just in the rain. Willem Dafoe knocks on the door, rings the doorbell or whatever. And it's like, okay, we're going to take off now. And Bradley Cooper says, um, you know, we can't just leave him here. And, the, you know, the Willem Dafoe says, who cares? I'm starving. You yeah, know? Don't and pretend he, like you care for my sake. So Come he on, drags steak, him. Steak and eggs. I'm buying. Yeah. <laughs> so he drags him over to where he's a little bit under. Out of the you know, direct. Out rain. of the rain a little bit. So he at least is. Whether he's a good person or not, he at least has some level of human compassion that that Willem Dafoe seems to not have at all. But we can we continually flash back to, and I think it's usually him having dreams of, and it appears to be that same house where he dragged the body, where it's his father on his deathbed and um, Bradley Cooper kind of leaving, leaning over to him. And, you know, he continually wakes up from that. So, but he seems like, a you know, again, this portion of the film, he seems like a, he doesn't really seem necessarily like a bad guy, like he's evil. Right. So then no, we yeah, we're, we're, we're rooting. We're pulling for him. Right. He's the protagonist. And we're, you know, we want things to go well for this guy. But then we cut ahead to two years later. He now has this mentalist act with Rooney Mara and. Who he, he met? Will... She had an act at the at the carnival, and right, she had an act at the carnival, and and he said, "Come away with me," and she did. She falls in love with him, and he seemingly is in love with her too. But at this point, two years later, he is pretty much a full-on con man. Where there, you know, he's going around doing this act, but also these people will come up to him afterwards and say, "Oh, you know, my." my son died or, you know, this person died or whatever. Could you help me communicate with a them? private, a private session? Yeah. Right. Which Rooney Mara does not really want to have, you know, they call that a spook show like you alluded to earlier. Um, and he is fully on board now at this point with running these scams on these people. And what I wonder about the film is, was he this person all along? Or did the money change him? What do you think? No, I, I think it. I think it was the evolution. I think he was really in love with her when he said, "Come away with me." Um, but he didn't. I mean, like many of us, he he didn't know himself very well. Mm-hmm. I think he believes he's a good guy. But as the movie goes on and on, and as he digs himself deeper into this hole or series of holes, he does things out of desperation. He does things that are increasingly unforgivable. Whether or not the recipient of those actions deserves it or not. You know what I mean? Like he he seems to justify his bad actions as he as he goes so i think he's they're doing great he's on edge it seems like it's not enough for him and she's getting sort of sick of the act and then one night this femme fatale this uh, blonde um who we discovered kate blanchett who we discover later as a psychiatrist says 
she's trying to call him on his act. And she says, no, I, I think you guys are using a series of verbal cues because he's wearing a blindfold and his assistant says, you know, coded things like, what can you tell me about this object? Right. And he's using his mind. Right. But it is, she's right. It's just, and so, uh, she calls him on it and he calls her on it. And she says, I'm, I'm just going to hold up, you know, and you're going to tell me you, you use your mental powers and tell me what's in my handbag. Right. And he's right because he's a keen observer of people almost uncannily so and uh there's another great line where another character tells him if you're good at observing people it's probably because as a kid you know somebody put you through some difficult stuff and you you got good at observing people as a way of protecting yourself right as a way of reading the signs and you know not to get hit or getting out from under yeah. whatever it was that was that was tormenting you and and then he says but if they really did a number of you that crack is a hollow and you and you never fill it it'll never it's never enough and it'll never be filled so there's a lot of lines like that in this movie that are prophecies really and that's what this character at first we think it's a crack and then we realize it's a hollow and at that point where he decides um, she comes over with a judge later, the psychiatrist and says, I think he wants me to apologize. And he says, why would I do that? You gave me a, you know, you made this a great show tonight. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And he's excited by her because I think he, he feels this act with the woman I'm not feeling it for anymore. And who isn't into it, isn't going anywhere. Whereas he recognizes in this psychiatrist a kindred spirit at a higher level that's like playing a, a higher game. And that's when he decides maybe it would be okay to do a private session with this important judge guy. And maybe that would lead to some like another level of income, basically. Right. And maybe even power or whatever. Something, something that's going to fill that hollow that mm -hmm. so far this hasn't been enough you know yeah and guess what she is bad news mm -hmm. <laughs> and it leads to bad worse people and it goes bad <laughs> you know? but uh, sure. so yeah so then when once we get to the end where he is dealing with this tycoon and his wife comes in to to play the part of the spirit of this of this uh woman who had died. And then he finds out the, the tycoon guy confesses to him about how he's hurt all these young women. And I don't know if that was, did you take that as he killed them or, uh, but at any rate, I mean, whatever I, it is, I would say raped at least, or, yeah. you know, whatever or, it is, we find out this is well, a really bad guy. And I think that the psychiatrist guy. is one of them, right? She shows him the scar yeah. she has on her chest. I think yeah. that that, is what ended their profession because this this magnate uh this this you know baron of whatever that's such a bad guy she's the one that tells him tells the bradley cooper character about this guy right from the therapy sessions that she was doing she knows intimate things about this guy that she shares with bradley cooper as part of a grift and i think I think it was all a setup on her, her part. She warns him. She's like, this guy's unstable. You need to be very careful. Knowing that Bradley Cooper is, you know, thinks he's smarter and faster and quicker witted than. Oh, you're saying like she, she set him up from the very beginning. Yeah. I, I as, think that too. as a revenge plot against the big wig. Mm -hmm. And because yeah. she despises Bradley Cooper, but I think she saw on Bradley Cooper this is a guy who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and who I can use. Like I'll put those two together and it will go, it'll go real bad. And if I'm lucky, then he'll, then the guy who hurt me will get his. Right. And then, you know, 
I'll dispose of Bradley Cooper as need be. Right. Yeah. And that yeah, I, is more or less the that. way it plays out. <laughs> you know. So, yeah. So then he, so the Richard Jenkins character, then, you know, he figures out that it's a con and, uh, Bradley Cooper kills him. And then he also has a, a Richard Jenkins has like a bodyguard type of a guy who starts shooting it. And Bradley Cooper runs over him with the car. Yeah. And then we have a scene. We come back to, I, th- I think it was after this. We've continually had the flashback of him at his father's deathbed, which we thought maybe was what seemed like kind of a tender moment. And then we see that extended out. And he leans over and he says, I've always hated you. And it's wintertime. And he pulls the blanket off of his father's bed and opens up the window. So the cold air comes in and then stands up and wraps the blanket around him. And I th- the implication I that being that he stands there and watches his father watches him death. die. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Watches him freeze to death. And I thought that was really a really neat touch because had we seen that in the beginning, you're not with him. You know, you're the audience is going to be like, this guy is really bad. Right. Uh, but you know, we get that at the end and, you know, all along through the film, even though he's done these bad things, you're still kind of with him as, as the audience, you know? Yep. And then the last line when he realizes, so that moment where it all comes down and she's pretending to be the, the ghost and he beats the, the magnate's face in mm-hmm. he's threatening you. He realizes he grabs her and he says, I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to, you know, I don't remember what he says to her, but it's bad, like threatens her too. And, and that's when and this he is self-defense of, on Bradley Cooper's part, because they would have killed them. It, you know, it, it was self-defense in that, in that moment for in sure. Moment, yeah. But there were so many great big red flags prior to that, where you're like, he goes and he convinces, she's like, I'm out, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. And he goes and he talks her into it. And you're like, someone's going to get really hurt or killed, man. Like and this she is says, a terrible idea, dude. She <laughs> says, this is it. I'm gone after this. Yeah. And, and, you, you know, I'm like, you. you either give him his money back or you make a run for it, but you don't go through with it. Like, no. this is a powder keg. And guess what? <laughs> you know, so the fact that neither of them get shot is kind of a miracle. But she mm-hmm. stands there as he beats the guy's face in. And he's come on, they get in the car and the other guy comes out shooting and he hits him with the car and then he runs over him again. It's really <laughs> nasty. Mm-hmm. So now she's his accessory to this double homicide. Right. And that's where he loses her. So she, of course, she never wants to talk to him again. And she just takes off. And he's still like, no, we can, you know, we'll. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> runs off. So then it's just a downward spiral for him. Right. And he ends up. Oh, and one, let me just say one thing really quick throughout the film. And we never really know why exactly. We, we, we don't have an, an exact answer for this, but he's a total non-drinker. He never drinks. Right. Right. And then right around the time of this big con, he starts drinking. Well, she, the psychiatrist, keeps pressuring him to do it. Keeps right. She's like, we're going to work on that. Right. And she knows she, that's a part of his downfall as well. That you know, he's a former alcoholic or something. You yeah. Know? Or, yeah. And it sounds like his dad was. And mm-hmm. anyway, by the end, he is on skid row. Like he is really. He's got a nasty long hair and this nasty beard and he's homeless and a drunk and ends up at another carnival. Oh, he sees it's his carnival. He sees mm-hmm. an ad in the paper that he's about to throw in a trash can fire and it's the, the circus is in town or whatever. So he's like, oh, and he goes thinking maybe he can. But it's not it's not the same guy anymore. It's a new guy has bought the outfit. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> does the whole geek thing on him, like sits him down. He's like, you know, I do. I do have one job, but it would only be temporary, though. And then you're like, oh, man. And when he realizes that he's being groomed to be the new geek. 
his line is, I, I was born for it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He laughs and laughs and, and, uh, a kind of an insane laugh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was born for it. You realize he's never believed that he's any good, right? That's the, that's the mind job he's had his whole life. It's just that he's been taught to believe that he doesn't deserve any better than that. And he's no good. And then he spent his whole life trying to prove it wrong and to himself by the end, instead he has proven it true. It's his fate that he has to. Yeah. That's what it, he believes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he believes. And, but you I know, think that the, the, the message that the movie leaves me is not that Bradley Cooper was per se born rotten. Mm -mm. Right. So Bradley Cooper was not Bradley Cooper, the geek at the end was not born for it, but he was apparently in the original movie. The line is I was made for it. Ah, uh, okay. And I think what the movie sort of indicates is this is the product of a series of other forces, not least his father and parents and childhood that set his life on this kind of trajectory and influenced the choices that he made. You know, it's not fate. No. But he's you know, somewhat the, of a prisoner of his poor the world, decisions. The world kind of made him that way, right? Yeah. He could have. He could have continued with the mentalist thing for as long as he could have. He was, he was making, doing great. He was doing great with it. And that. it was an entertainment. I think it, maybe I'm misremembering. I think at one point he even says, this is an entertainment. You know, I don't, mm -hmm. we don't, that's not, you know, he's, that's what he starts to say to the judge when he sits down, right? Before the psychiatrist shows up, he says, you know, this, sir, this is a, stage show that i do i don't you know i'm not a medium i don't come to your house and and something changes when he sees the psychiatrist and start to she starts to kind of manipulate the conversation but yeah that's where it changed where he, where he goes from being a kind of a showman like a magician mm -hmm. to passing himself off as a mind a, a literal an actual mind reader yeah there's a lie detector scene. There's a number of scenes where people are putting and he cons to them his feet. in the lie detector. <laughs> and he, yeah, he was one of the one of the most interesting things about that character is he seems to thrive on it. Like he seems yeah. to he seems to be out of at his best when you tip him out of the frying pan and into the fire. He he really shines at those moments, and they're really great scenes because you're like, yeah. oh no. You know, and then he, he's like, like, oh he my God, he got so, out of it, you know? Yeah. Yep. And eventually he can't, he just can't get out of it anymore. No, all eventually. You know what this felt like to me continuously through watching this? It felt like a feature length, more serious um, Tales from the Crypt episode. Huh. Because you know how those always, you know, in the, those original comics and the show, the the person always got what was coming to them in the end so you knew throughout the movie it's going to go wrong at some point you know you yeah. didn't know exactly what and it wasn't until late that i figured out what his fate ultimately was going to be <clears throat> that's what it without the humor that the 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 tales from the crypt had that that's what it really felt like to me yeah the tales from the crypt thing though they never went they never let you see the perpetrator as a victim though right it was always like this wealthy person makes a selfish choice and then reaps the consequences of that choice in a you know monkey's paw kind of cosmic comeuppance way mm -hmm. and here with the father it, there's the implication that he had a very difficult childhood Right. There's the implication that he didn't just casually hate his father for no reason, but that his father he was abused, was you know. hateful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what's a little different about this and what what makes the, the, the tragedy of this is we we while we never really see him as the abused, it is strongly sketched out that that's how it started. And the implication is not that like, well, bad people do get what's coming to them. It's more that it's like, um, 
villains aren't born they're made you know hurt mm-hmm. hurt people hurt people like you 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 get out from under your abusive father's thumb and you think i'll never i am i'm not going to be the kind of man he was and then kind of paradoxically you end up being if not in exactly the same way you end up being the kind of person he was because that's what you were taught to be you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah, uh, you know, and I, I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting. It's it has to do with the you're the psychology major, but that was a very powerfully uh, that kind of harmonic message came through in a number of places in the film. That was kind of like there was a strong, you know. It's like these are all choices that someone's making, but on another hand, it's kind of like, well, if you got that, you know, if it's too big a gap, you'll just, it'll never be enough and you'll never fill it, you know? Right. And there were a lot of alcoholics. I mean, the, the circus is not a place where people, the sense is that it's a sort of a place where society's misfits for one people that are running from something. Yeah. And and don't want to be a part of society in a lot of ways. getting caught up in that moving, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, dustpin of, human flotsam and jetsam and right but uh yeah i mean i I just i like that because it didn't seem to come down on whether we're all doomed to some fate we ultimately can't control despite we feel like we are or if he was actually on a pretty good track and then you know like if there were opportunities where he could have made different choices if he'd have just listen to the woman who loved him or took a hard enough look in the mirror or decided mm-hmm. not to have that drink, you know, I mean, yeah. it wasn't fate that he met the therapist who was manipulating him and pushing his buttons and pulling his strings. Right. I mean, so yeah, I just yeah, found it fascinating. Sure. I love to think about it. You know, I love, I love when movies run deeper than just the thing that happens on the screen. And Del Toro wrote this, you know, so he's, you know, he, um, I just kept thinking, watching this, I'm not sure if there's anybody else working today whose films look any better than his do. You know, you talked about Crimson Peak, which was just a beautiful looking film. And then also he wrote this as well. And I mean, man, what a talented what yeah. a talented guy, you know? Yeah. Yep. You know, he was on before Peter Jackson came back on for the Hobbit movies. He was going to do. He was at least on track to direct those. That would that would have been really interesting. It would have I mean, been. He, and one, he would one, knock. Little, one little snippet I heard was that they were sort of toying with different designs for Smaug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one one was was that it would be a, this totally different, this kind of non, what we ended up with the movies is this Dungeons and Dragons image of right. a dragon, you know, it's a big mm-hmm. lizard with big wings. It looks like literally like a dragon, like would have been illustrated in the original book. And, and he thought I wanted it to be, I mean, I read this a long time ago, but the, the, the image that he thought it was like when you throw a hatchet, the way it sort of spins end over end that somehow smaug flying would be some this totally other thing Hmm. and i think part of the reason why this duty was like "Mm, no 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 we gotta we gotta stay in the same universe Uh, yeah you know we don't want to reinvent this wheel and i don't know what they did to get peter jackson back on board but and those movies were fine i mean i i i didn't have anything against the hobbit movies you know there were people kind of grumbled about them but they were fine but but yeah, I and I it would have been neat having him done those, but I also I'm fine with him just doing his own his own thing, you know. So this um the I don't know if you saw the Academy Award nominations or not, but the Academy Award nominations came out and I wanted to go through. So this was nominated for Best Picture. So uh so the, the nominees for Best Picture were this, Nightmare Alley, Don't Look Up, Dune, and 
those are the only three that I've seen of the the best picture nominations. And then there was Drive My Car, Belfast, Licorice Pizza, The Power of the Dog, West Side Story, King Richard, and Coda. Have you seen any of those other ones? No. Yeah, I haven't either. Don't look up. I enjoyed, you know, we did that a couple episodes ago. I don't think of that as an Academy Award best picture type of film. I didn't. Um, Yeah. And then Dune, um, you know, I liked you. You were more into it than I was from a technical standpoint. I mean, it's it's incredible the effects wise. And I think it's cool that um, to have a science fiction film get nominated because that doesn't happen very often. But I don't know that it's a best picture either you know but i but but i think it's interesting that this was nominated and and the kind of the sad thing is this only brought in about 10 million dollars in the theater um this is a tough sell in today's market i would say even del toro who has had a best picture in the past with the shape of water but you know we've brought this up a lot on this show in the past, this is kind of a, just a traditional for adults kind of movie, you know? Right. Uh, which, you know, how much audience is there for that in the, in the cinema now? I don't know, but, uh, and I regret that I, I really wanted to see this in the theater and I just didn't get around to it. I wish I had. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been spectacular in the theater. And I'm I really would like to see it in black and white. You can see that it's lit for black and white. Mm-hmm. It's uh the color is mostly sepia. It's a more of a yeah. sepia toned color thing, but um I bet it's gorgeous in black yeah. and white. Yeah. Oh, and that was something that I wanted to come back to that you that you mentioned at, at the beginning about the, the sets. So that was when I was watching it, the there are a couple of times, and especially in the end, where they're at the mansion of this tycoon guy, and they're outside in this, uh, you know, they have sort of like a hedge maze. And I couldn't tell if that was a real place or if that was a set or not. I don't know how. I, th- I think in black and white, things look a little bit flatter than in the color version of the film, but could you tell if did it appear to be a, that they were on location or if it was a set? It looked on location to me, but I okay. honestly, the action between the characters was so interesting. I couldn't take my eyes off of them. So right. I didn't spend a lot of time like looking around felt mm-hmm. like they were outside in a place. Yeah. You know, it didn't feel like it was a, a you know, background painting. or anything. It wasn't like in a bad way that it seemed like a set, but I was just like, is this a, a real place or is it a set? You know, with, um uh with crimson peak they built that whole you know now it's falling apart but they built that old mansion you know that was all that wasn't a real place you know that was a that was a set but black and i was also thinking about with black and white films i you know i'll admit to as we've talked about early on i don't watch a lot of films from the 40s and 50s um but i love new black and white films i just think with the 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 cameras and the lenses and everything that they have now black and white just looks so beautiful and i was trying to think of you know what other things have been released that were really the only thing that i can really think of is schindler's list that was a really big kind of blockbuster film that was in you know now that's probably close to 30 years old but um can you think of other big black and white films that have been, you know, I, again, that's a niche thing. You, you're not, if they had released this in black and white, just in, it would have done a, even worse than, than it did. But didn't, didn't they, they had like um, a comic book movie after 300, they had a comic book movie, Sin City or something that was black. Oh and yeah. White yeah. Sin City was, was black and white. Like a, I mean, that yeah, was very, was, very stylized. And it had it had color aspects of it, but yeah, you're right. That's that's probably the only other thing that I can think of. Um, but did you see Mank? No. Nope. Uh, you know that wasn't that may have had a limited theatrical release, but you know that's black and white. But uh, but yeah, I would love to see just like 
one or two big studio release. I mean, I know that's a wish list that's never going to be fulfilled, but uh, a couple of big studio black and white films a year would be would just be really cool. But I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I'm guessing you'd recommend this to people. I would 100%. I, I thought it was fantastic. It's one of my favorite movies I've seen in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Same for and me. I, I would, I would, uh, I am considering watching it again. Like if, if it comes out mm-hmm. in black and white for sure. And if not, maybe I'll try and do what you did and adjust my. Yeah. All I TV did was color. just, there's just a color setting and I just turned that all, all, the, way all down. the way down. I, I don't know if all TVs you can do that on or not, yeah, but yeah, I I'll just, check. so, so I'm sure the actual, you know, that was kind of a cheat. I'm sure the actual black and white release that comes out on the blu-ray or if they release it streaming will look even better than what probably because you know, it'll yeah. be set up properly for that yeah. but yeah um yeah he's i mean del toro for me can just pretty much do no wrong i mean he just makes movies that i want to see and they're beautiful and interesting do you have an idea of what you want to do for next time because i have we, never seen the shape of water oh okay um I mean, we talked about nobody, but but we could if you want right. to do... we can do nobody, and then okay. why don't we do the shape of water after sure, that? Sure, yeah. Uh, I've heard it was that. great, and that just kind of went by in my life, and I didn't I didn't get out to see it. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I would be way into that because I just saw I saw it in the theater, and that's the only time that I've watched it. So, so that's been what a few years ago, four yeah. or five years. Um. Yeah, so we'll do Nobody with uh, Bob Odenkirk for next time. That's also on HBO Max. Yes. That's also a new film, new-ish. Um, uh, with Chris and Chris Talk Movies at gmail.com. We're on YouTube. Maybe you're watching us on YouTube. Hi. Uh, maybe you're listening to us on the podcast. Hello. Thank you for Hello. tuning in. Um, if you're on uh, YouTube, help us out. Subscribe, like, leave a happy comment uh something on the socials we're on the socials um yeah that's the spiel um for next time we're gonna do nobody we both really loved this film nightmare alley and um yeah i mean that's all that's that's about it do you have anything else you wanted to add that's all i got excellent in that case we will talk to you next week